Welcome to We Are Meaningful, a podcast where we transform the anonymous experiences of black and brown talent into powerful audio narratives. Each month, we center the dialogue around a common theme, providing you, our listeners, with the tools and resources you need to help navigate, grow, and thrive in corporate spaces. Our stories, experiences, and our voices are meaningful. We are meaningful. Hi, everyone. This is Crystal. And this is Krista. And welcome to another episode of the We Are Meaningful podcast. So it's June and our narrative this month is Burden of Proof. And this narrative really emphasizes the pandemic of racism and its impact on black and brown lives. And this narrative is chilling, it's powerful, and it really draws the parallel between what we experience as black and brown people in and outside of corporate spaces. So our guest today is actually Jarrett Carroll, and Jarrett has over 20 years of experience as a diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging leader. He is a sought-after professional speaker, panel moderator, workshop facilitator, writer, and leadership coach. Using his accessible and authentic storytelling approach rooted in empathy, curiosity, vulnerability, mindfulness, and self-development principles, he has inspired and influenced thousands of groups and individuals to elevate their personal awareness and cultural fluency so they can drive impact and affect change in their communities. Jared is also connected to us on LinkedIn. (laughs) Yes, he is sought after. We can, we can attest to that because we sought after him. So sure did. Welcome to the show, Jared. Thank you so much for seeking after me. (laughs) Uh, I'm very happy to be here. So before we jump into the interview, I want to give folks the opportunity to hear the burden of proof narrative. If you're just joining us for the first time. So let's roll the narrative. To whom it may concern, and it should concern us all. This isn't an isolated incident, but you knew that. We are constantly evolving to their expectations, adapting to their changing rules, navigating their unequal systems, and yet it still isn't enough. The burden of proof is always on us, and they get the presumption of innocence. How many stories, emails, recordings, articles, data, reports will it take? When will they have the evidence they need to commit to real change for us? They made the game, so they control the narrative, and therefore, the outcome. We're fighting for our rights within a system and space that was built to keep us down. And unfortunately, they also are the only ones with the true power to change it. Please, 
I'm asking you to be intentional. I'm asking you to be objective and equitable. I'm asking you to check your bias. I'm asking you to stand up and challenge. I'm asking for justice, but I'm also asking for the right to exist in peace. Please, 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 man, please, man. They are everywhere. They are our CEO, our executives, our managers, and our colleagues. They are secretly policing our black and brown employees. They're dishing out negative performance reviews because they can. They're scheming to disposition us. They are uncomfortable with the cultural differences. They mean well though, right? They are being protected and we are being maligned. They are validated every time we're harmed without reparation. They laugh and tell us it was never about race. But they're always the same folk, and so are we. You know who they are. You might even belong to this elusive they. Do better. Sincerely, people of color. Jared, after hearing the narrative, and you've heard it multiple times by now, what were your initial thoughts and reactions to hearing it? Yes, uh, I have heard it multiple times, and it's it's chilling each time. And, you know, what, what kind of just jumps to top of mind is... is uh, when you hear George George Floyd, you know, pleading for his life that he can't breathe, that there was an, an intentional lack, failure of of of, of Derek Chauvin's uh, to see George Floyd's humanity. Um, and I think you know when you watch that video, if 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 you're able to, and I know a lot of people haven't been able to. Um, or hear it, or hear the you know the narrative that that you put together. You realize if you're going to do that to someone in whatever context, uh, there's a there's a failure to see your own humanity and and the other person's humanity. And it seems like I've become I've I've been arriving at that. Um, I don't want to say conclusion because I don't feel like there's ever a conclusion, but I've been arriving at that idea more and more lately with Ahmaud Aubrey and, um, you know, Breonna Taylor, Christian Cooper, who, who, who thankfully you know, didn't die. Um, this inability to see them as, as human. And so it's, that's kind of what comes, comes to mind. Um, you know, this lack of, lack of being able to see another person's humanity. I also think about, um, you know, why is that? Why do why do people not, uh, are why are people unable to to see that humanity? And I think it comes down to this idea of of power, 
and privilege that, that a white supremacist society affords people. It affords vigilante racists in southern Georgia the, the, the ability to take a shotgun and, and murder a jogger. It gives a, a white cop in Minneapolis uh, the ability, the privilege, the power to to kneel on a man's neck for for nine nine minutes, um, and so I think what's happening now, which I think I and I think we all do hope that it's the start of a of a different movement. Um, I hope it is. I hope it's sustainable, and I hope real change comes from it to to actually check that power and that privilege um, to, to have lasting change. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more there because I think that there's a lot of momentum and a lot of energy right now around the topic. But as we know, like there have been so many movements, I won't say exactly like this one, but similar to where we have this rising up of people who are saying enough is enough. But I feel like this movement is different. It feels um, stronger. It feels more authentic. I feel like we're hearing more voices and not just black people, not just brown people, not just individuals in communities, but we're actually hearing companies and corporations stand up and say enough is enough. And not only in the U.S., but all over the world because racism is a global pandemic. It's not just something that's happening in the U.S. alone. Yeah, I agree. I'm I'm feeling that you know personally and professionally, and and I think a, a good anecdotal um, I don't know example or use case I think is is my neighbor. So we've been neighbors for, well, I've lived here 13 years and we've been friends basically the whole whole time. Our kids are the same age and he's been in uh, video game software sales for, you know, his whole career, 25 years or, or so. And he's a white guy, a little bit older than me, maybe in his early 50s. And he, I've noticed in our conversations over the years and especially the last year and then even especially the last couple months that he's he he leans conservative, um, and he is more and more interested in the conversations that that I'm having, you know, that the two of us are having, and the and the topics that I'm bringing, texting him stories, emailing him stories. If you know, if we see each other on the street, you know, hey, did you, did you hear this? You know, that kind of stuff. And he said to me just the other day, he said, you know, I'm at a point where. I can no longer uh, ignore this. I can no longer kind of, you know, not pay attention to what's going on in in the world, at my company, uh, in the neighborhood, you know, all these different places. And I said, that's great. You know, you know, I'm glad to hear that. And he said, you know, the thing is, though, I, I don't know what to do. I know that I know I should, and I'm supposed to do something. I, but I don't know how to enter into conversations. I don't feel like I have uh, the fluency. I don't want to make a mistake. Um, you know, all these things that I think you know we all hear on an individual and collective level. And so I think that you spoke about momentum, 
And I think where the momentum is, is people who are uh, DNI practitioners, whether they're consultants or in-house, people who are social justice and racial justice advocates, uh, are able to, um, to very intentionally uh, align with that momentum and provide services, coaching, workshops, language, resources, uh, activism, um, policy changes, um, you know, change.org, uh, action pack, you know, different places to, to sign petitions, to donate, to call, call, uh, Congress people, et cetera. And I think there's, that's where the momentum I think is going to really, I hope, um, lead to change is taking, <laughs> taking advantage or, or, you know, using that increased awareness and desire to do something, and those of us who have been doing this and, and know what to do, to help them along uh, and hold them accountable, so that in three months, six months, nine months, three years, five years, this we can look back and say this is when things actually started to change. Yeah, and I, I think to your point, right? Sometimes it's easy for momentum to be a catalyst. And what pushes us, right? Can you tell us a bit about your journey to allyship and if that happened in a, in a moment like this or if the challenge was a bit different? Um, it, it, it was different, um, but in the end, the, where, I've, where I've kind of become or who I've become, I think is, is similar to w what I hope um, a lot of people will become you know, very shortly. But my, my uh, kind of evolution of consciousness or journey, my allyship journey is, is actually more rooted um, in the LGBT community. Um, my father was gay. He told me he was gay when I was 14. Uh, and you know, my parents were divorced and, and I lived, grew up with my mom and my, my half brother, younger brother. And so, you know, I'm 14, I'm a freshman in high school and he tells me he's gay and I, you know, I'm embarrassed, I'm confused, I'm ashamed, I, I cry, I go back, uh, he lived in San Francisco, I lived in San Diego, I went back home and I didn't tell anyone, um, didn't tell a soul, all the way through high school, halfway through college, I was a college athlete, so I had that whole reputation to, to uphold, and um, finally I told a, a friend in, in college, and she said, big deal, and uh, <laughs> It was actually she said big, you know, bleeping deal. Um, but you know, three words, three words that changed my life because it, you know, I'm 20 years old and all of a sudden I have permission from my best friend to like to expand my understanding of what, um, you know, what my life, what my story could be. And so through my 20s, I really started to uh, to to seek out other things than just sports and drinking and parties and, you know, that whole kind of college scene. And I had a closer relationship with my dad. Um, and through him, uh, you know, a gay man living in San Francisco and he had a whole, you know, crazy backstory of, of his whole life. And he, he was, uh, he became HIV positive. Um, and then he died of AIDS, um, when I was 27. So in, in 2000, about 20 years ago. And it was at that point through, through that relationship and that evolution that I realized kind of back to what we started with around humanity that not only was I not helping, uh, you know, the LGBT community or any other communities that I wasn't directly a part of, which was, you know, basically a, a very white, straight, homogenous community, 
but I was missing out on on my own and and others' humanity to connect, to to learn together, to grow together, to create together. And so when I moved up to San Francisco after he died, I started teaching. I taught a social justice curriculum. I was in a much more uh, culturally, politically, socially sophisticated and diverse and um, challenging uh, environment. And I, and I just ate it up. I loved it. I read, I listened, I immersed, I, you know, just everything. And so, as I said, you know, teaching a social justice curriculum, learning all about power and privilege, um, about the racial injustices, um, historically and contemporarily, uh, became a writer. And then, you know, more recently, the last four or five years doing, doing what I'm doing, um, you know, as a, as a, as a leadership coach and a strategic communications and, and, and writer and, and and facilitator. So, so yeah, so not one specific, uh, you know, kind of catalyst, like, like we're experiencing hopefully now, but a series of events as I, as I reflect upon them and really dive into owning and telling my own story. Jared, thank you for sharing that so openly. I'm so sorry to hear about the loss of your father. That's really tough. Um, I, I really appreciate you sharing it because it kind of lends itself to another question that I have. I do this all the time. Listeners, forgive me. Crystal, forgive me. Um, can you tell us a bit about the emotional journey that happens on your way to allyship? I think that sometimes, and excuse the expression, sometimes people feel like um, maybe it's like a switch or it's very black and white right? That one day you wake up and you're going to decide to take action and do all of these things. Uh, so, you know, thank you for walking us through like the different, uh, milestones in the journey within it. What are the emotional undertones? What's happening in your head? Yeah. yeah. On top no. of that, just oh, to yeah. like pepper something else in specifically the guilt because mm -hmm. what we're seeing from people now is that they feel immobilized by the guilt that they feel now that their eyes have been open to white supremacy and to power and privilege. Mm -hmm. What was that journey? That's a great question, Krista. Yeah, thank you both for, for asking that. Um, there was guilt uh, early on. You know, as I said, so, you know, and I'm totally comfortable sharing, sharing my age and, and stuff just to put the whole story into context. I, I just turned 47, you know, a couple days ago. And so, you know, I'm 27 and my dad dies and I had just, you know, five years out of college and that whole scene of athletics and partying and stuff and very narrow understanding uh, emotionally, politically, socially, you know, everything. And I was still kind of immature emotionally. You know, I hadn't really embarked on a professional career. I was surfing and parking cars and, you know, kind of just doing that life down in, in San Diego. And, um, and so there, there was guilt, um, but I don't, think, I don't think the guilt was the main driver for me. The, I think it was almost, I think it was a little bit of shame and, and almost embarrassment. So the same feelings that I felt when I was 14, when I had a gay dad and I was never going to tell anyone because of all the teasing and, you know, everything that would have happened and the loss of social capital and, and all that, 
it was a similar uh, feeling or emotion that drove me to reverse that. It's like, okay, Jared, you're 27. You're, you know, you've been, you've been having a great life so far doing your sports and your surfing and your you know, bartending and parking cars. But you need to start making an impact in the world. Um, and so it was, it was almost like a, uh, I didn't want to be that guy anymore. And I think a lot of people still who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s in corporate spaces, they still want to, they still want to be that guy. And they don't see that they, they can choose actively, intentionally to not be that guy. And so, you know, the emotional journey, it, it was almost like a, I don't know, like if, like a paying, a paying back or like carrying on the legacy that my dad, you know, he never said this to me. We never had a conversation about it, but, you know, I know now that all the things he was trying to teach me about, <clears throat> you know, about inclusion and, and injustice and, and, and all these things that I just wasn't hearing, uh, cause I was in my bubble and I had the privilege to not hear it. And so that the emotional journey was like that awareness of, you know, again, I keep coming back to, to humanity, like my own humanity. What was I missing out by, by siloing myself in homogenous communities? And for the last 20 years, I've been, you know, very intentionally trying to not do that. Yeah, thank you so much for taking us through your emotional journey. And I just felt like a little bit choked up there because a lot of the things that I've learned, I've learned from my father. And my father is, he's older. He's much older. I'm adopted. But I can't even imagine thinking about life without him in it. And when you mentioned like all the things that your father taught you, it just really made me think more intently about how important my father is to me and how important the things that I've learned from him have been in my life. Yeah, there was, and, and you know, thank you for that. And you're welcome. Glad to share. And, you know, part of my work is modeling, you know, public vulnerability, uh, sharing, you know, sharing my story. Um, cause I think again, back to the humanity, um, when people are willing to share a little bit about themselves, especially people in leadership positions who are highly visible and influential and, and powerful, when they give us a little bit of who they are beyond a professional business, you know, facade, it really can change. It can really change things. Um, and one episode I, I do recall, I was probably 25 and I was on the 19 Polk bus, uh, in San Francisco and it, it goes through the Tenderloin and, and I was coming back from a bookstore and I had, I was just kind of getting into my reading days. Um, I wasn't an avid reader yet, but I was just kind of beginning to, to be one. And I had, bought uh, a copy of Invisible Man 
by Ralph Ellison. My dad had recommended it to me, and I, you know, I didn't know. I just, I just went and got it, and sure, I'll, I'll read it. So I'm on this bus, and um, I'm going through the Tenderloin, and the black man uh, gets on, and, and it's a pretty empty bus, and he sits, he sits pretty much right next to me, which was I, I found a little odd. And uh, he, I could tell he wanted to start a conversation, but I, you know, I, I had never really had a conversation with a with a stranger on a bus, let alone a, a, a black man. And uh, he starts talking. He says, "That's a great book." And I said, "Oh yeah, my you know my dad recommended." It. He said, "That book changed my life." And for probably five to ten minutes, we talk about books. And he was from Harlem, and I told him about my dad, and we talked about urban versus suburban, and all, all just all these great things that I had never really kind of engaged in any sort of philosophical or intellectual conversation. And so. He gets off and I get off a few a few stops later and I'm walking back to my dad's house and I'm kind of on this like this high. And I get back and, you know, hey dad, how's it going? And hey, oh, what'd you get oh, about these books? Oh, you got Invisible or Invisible Man. I said, Yeah, you know. Um, and you know, I met this guy on the bus and I'm telling him all about this this conversation that I have, and I could tell my dad was was pleased, almost like he had, you know, been waiting for this 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 event to happen to me. And towards the end of the telling of my story, I say, yeah, and he was actually pretty smart. And my dad was, you know, he was disappointed. I could tell that I was, I was emerging, I was evolving, but I still, I still had a long way to, to, to go a lot to unlearn about stereotypes and, and racism. And so that was, you know, that was, uh, that was a big thing that I, that I remember, you know, that was gosh, over 20 years ago. And it still, still sticks with me, the lesson. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, it's easy to be moved by this conversation because we all have family, right? We all grow up in situations, um, and we have moments that we remember where we engage about these specific topics with everything that's going on right now, right? It, it is truly a turning point in history. And many people are calling it the accelerated civil rights movement. As somebody who is so heavily impacted by, you know, their father's presence, what's your advice for parents raising children right now? What's, what's your approach? Yeah, great question. Um, uh, I have 11 year old twins. Um, they just, just finished fifth grade, uh, going on to middle school and actually going to the school where I taught when they were born, when I taught a social justice curriculum. So it's kind of come in full circle. Yeah. The, I think the biggest, so as much as my dad influenced me, um, especially in my later high school, college and post-college years, you know, he wasn't, I didn't live with him. You know, they, my parents divorced when I was two and I grew up with my mom who was, I mean, she was 19 when she had me and she was not educated, not politically savvy. And she was just trying to survive and raise us. And so, and this was the late set, you know, I was born in 73. So this is, you know, seventies, eighties, and I wasn't taught anything or if I was, I don't remember it. I wasn't taught anything about any of this stuff we're talking about. You know, I'd go up to visit my dad. He lived in L.A. for a little bit, and then he moved to San Francisco when I was uh, 11. So 
you know, I'd go up and see him and, and I'd learn kind of us like through osmosis or vicariously just through being around different people and places and communities and, and stuff. But I wasn't explicitly taught by my parents, even my dad, by my uh, teachers, by any community or family members or friend, you know, pe- pe- uh, friends, parents. No one talked about this stuff. And so now I feel very fortunate to have kids, you know, in the Bay Area, in Oakland, um, you know, I'm very mindful of what are my two, you know, privileged white kids. Um, what, how are they evolving, hopefully in a different, more involved, more aware way than I was? And, and that really comes down to, you know, my partner and me normalizing the conversations because this type of stuff we I never talked about it with anyone you know as long until I was maybe you know post college and so talking about what's going on with with my kids normalizing the conversation pointing out things to them about injustices differences privilege um, asking their opinion about things what do you think because this is something I, I intentionally want to improve on with my parenting is it's relatively easy for me to talk from an area of expertise. And, you know, I do this work and they know that. And my partner's a, a, a physical therapist in a hospital. So she sees a very diverse patient population. So we can normalize those conversations and experience and friendships and, and relationships. And we both want to start doing a better job of of getting their um, opinions, getting their insights that aren't just informed by by us. So I think um, for any parents out there listening, um, these topics from an early, you know, an early age have to be normalized, or else they're going to feel awkward. They're going to feel taboo, and your kids are going to recognize it, especially when they get you know eight, nine, ten, eleven, and, and older. They're going to like. How come dad doesn't like to talk about this stuff? He always gets all weird, right? So how do you make it where it's not weird um, so that they can actually grow up and be, you know, be activists unlike I was? Yeah, and I think much like people, right, as they were growing up, organizations also have not been talking about this topic at all until very recently and obviously there are some exceptions to the rule like like Ben and Jerry's for example they've been talking about systemic racism for a very long time Um, but right now what we're seeing is that there are a lot of organizations breaking the internet to show support for the Black Lives Matter movement and for some this is a show of performative solidarity And for others, it's really a commitment to action and not just action in the moment, but sustainable action. What type of impact do you think um, these sorts of messages have in these moments from leaders and politicians, corporations, celebrities, large platforms? What impact do they have? Yeah, great question. Um, I think the impact is um, is 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 and will continue to be, uh, what's the word I want to use, on a continuum, I guess. Um, and, and 
and I don't know that we know yet what the impact is going to, to be. I, I agree with you that you see these statements, whether they're from individual leaders or, or you know, kind of from a company um, perspective, that see, they're very well written uh, and they seem to say the right things. And, and I wonder who wrote them um, and what template are they using? And uh, does the person whose name is on it have what level of fluency does, well, it's usually a he or he or she or they have to, to actually talk about the issues beyond a prepared, you know, well-crafted statement. Um, and so I think the good news is, I think there are two, you know, so I'm a little bit skeptical and, and I'd even argue a little bit cynical of some of them. Um, but I think the good news is on two fronts. One is that, okay, at least they're saying something, actually three fronts. One, at least they're saying something. So that's better than, than not saying something. Two, related to that, hopefully there are enough of us, uh, consultants, internal folks, change agents, people who are, uh, you know, part of this this momentum, this this movement that we've been talking about, who are going to continually and regularly and and I don't know forcefully is the right word, but you know, but very sternly uh, hold them accountable. You know, you've probably seen the the you know where are the receipts, you know, that kind of language to see what what is going to follow next week, next month, later in the year, next year, as far as actual, um, you know, diverse diversity on boards, on executive suites, on pay equity, you know, all these different things that actually show that these well-crafted statements mean something. And then the third, the third part that is, I think, um, promising for me, and I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, is that you, we are seeing some statements that are, um, you know, like I think Ben and Jerry's is a, is, a, is a good example of like, you can tell that they, the nuance of the way they, their language, you can tell they know what they're talking about. And we also know if we follow them or if we, you know, easily look it up that they've been, they've been saying this and doing stuff for, for years. So it's not just all of a sudden this, this realization. And then related to that, there are also some, not enough, but some statements that actually come from a personal storytelling perspective, where we get to see a little bit of the personal why or origin story of why a leader, you know, actually cares about this. So that gives me a little bit of hope. It builds a little bit of a little bit more trust and connection. Still, the accountability part needs to be there, but at least there's a little bit more emotion in it and not just a, a boilerplate template um, statement that could come from any company. So we'll see. We will see. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, Crystal and I talk about this all the time on the show and I'm sure you know it well, Jared, it's intent versus impact, right? And the more that we have conversations and the more that I see this movement unfolding while I, I completely agree with the fact that you need to focus on your impact versus your intent. I think in all of this, you know, 
performative behavior and culture, we're also realizing that intent does play a much larger role in the ability to have a positive impact. Yeah, I, I actually, I really like that reframe, Krista, because if for people who don't have the fluency and the, um, the awareness of the nuances and subtleties and, and, and longevity of, of, of these issues, we can't expect them to all of a sudden just jump in like they're, you know, uh, you know, graduate students in this work. So, so I think we have to find that balance of, you know, we don't want to give, you know, allyship cookies or badges or, you know, any of that, but, but to say, Hey, your intent is, is, is appreciated and, and welcomed and, you know, thank you. And, Let's let's make let us help you in whatever role that is as a consultant, as a you know, as an internal person, to to make sure that that intent that intent does have the impact that we want. So I think that's a very good point, I, I, and I agree. Well, I've really loved this conversation that we've had with you today, and I think it's going to be really helpful to a lot of folks that are struggling right now and that feel immobilized, that they don't know what to do, they don't know what to say, especially to their children. So outside corporate spaces and inside corporate spaces. So we really thank you so much for um, the deep conversation today. And I'm sure our listeners want to hear more from you. So where can they find you online? Well, thank you both, Crystal and Krista. I really I'm honored to have been invited and to speak, and you're very welcome. And um, I thought it was a great conversation as well. Um, my, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So just um, find me, Jared Carroll, J-A-R-E-D-K-A-R-O-L, um, is the best place. Connect with me, follow me, whatever. Send me a message. I'm, I'm more than happy to connect. Um, my website is jaredcarroll.com. So J-A-R-E-D-K-A-R-O-L. You see a lot of my writings and and services there. And I started a, a, a few months ago, I started a, a podcast. It's just, just me telling stories, um, five-minute little, little anecdotes. In fact, some of these stories that maybe I shared here are, are on there. Um, you, so you can find that on my website and on my LinkedIn profile. It's um, Belonging Stories uh, on, on Spotify. So those are the three main places. I, I try to stay off Twitter and Facebook and Instagram as much as I, as much as I can. <laughs> yeah, well, what I will say to anyone who's listening, if you're still listening, Jared pulls up mm-hmm. on LinkedIn consistently. So if you follow us, Jared is definitely someone that you want to follow. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the We Are Meaningful podcast. Follow us on Instagram at wearemeaningful.co and visit our website to learn more about our community and how you can get involved. We're excited to hear your thoughts on today's episode. Talk to you next week.